MacCast, Sunday, February 20th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple Mac news, rumors, goings-ons, and all the happenings in our Apple and Mac universe. Hope you are having a wonderful, great day. Taking a look over the show notes, have a few things to get into in this episode. We're going to talk about uh, new Macs that might be on the horizon along with other products. Uh, talk about some Apple TV Plus things happening at South by Southwest. Going to get into what's going on with the Dutch finding Apple and what, if anything, Apple's going to do about it. And then we have a couple of iPhone 14 rumors to discuss as well. And that's going to round out the news for this week. And then we're going to get into some additional follow-up on our KVM discussion. I actually got a great solution from a listener that I want to share with you. We're going to get into Touch ID. And uh, somebody tried to help me out with uh, something I commented on on the last episode of the MacCast with my new M1 Mac or M1 Pro Mac, I guess I should say. Uh, And then I have a question about Apple TV TV and privacy, and then we have a great listener thing of the moment to round out this week's MacCast. So really should be a good one, and we'll get into everything here in just a moment. But before we do, I do want to take a quick second and thank a show sponsor, and that is Kanji. You know, if you work in IT or tech support in an Apple environment and have to manage multiple devices or machines, you know how time-consuming that can be. But it doesn't have to be with Kanji. A new Mac can be transformed into a work-ready computer with all the right apps and settings in place. Devices managed with Kanji keep themselves secure. Apps are patched. Mac OS is updated. And security controls are enforced without active management from admins. And if you're like me and have ever worked in an environment where they don't have something like Kanji, you know how frustrating it can be. When you want to get an app updated or you need a new version of an app, something like that, and you have to create a support ticket and you have to wait for IT to get back to you, you're not going to have any of that with Kanji because as an Apple admin, you can let your users control which apps are installed on their devices. It's better for you and better for the users. Kanji's self-service app lets you do just that on both iOS and on macOS. Not only that... Uh, it will just make your users a lot happier. With Kanji, you can show users a curated list of apps that they can install on their own. You can customize that self-service app with your own branding, help text, and even software categories. Apps in Kanji's auto app catalog can also be set to deliver via self-service, so it can do the work for you. And once installed, they can keep every it can keep everything patched automatically. Kanji has been focused on device autonomy through automated remediation since they first started. If an app is uninstalled or a setting is changed, the Kanji agent detects it and fixes it, saving you time and stress. And Kanji can also help you protect your endpoints by enforcing over 150 pre-built security controls. And these controls go way beyond the scope of the MDM framework to help you secure your devices. 
They also automatically remediate even when your devices are offline. So go to kanji.io slash maccast for a free demo or trial. That's K-A-N-D-J-I dot I-O slash maccast. Kanji.io slash maccast for a free trial or demo. And a big thank you to Kanji for their support of the MacCast. Despite not likely being a Mac-only event, there seems to be a lot of focus this week, especially in the community, on Apple's next event, which we're expecting to happen around March 8th. And many people are speculating on what kind of a Mac announcement might be at that event. We're expecting a new iPhone SE and an entry-level iPad, but there's also this possibility, and we've been discussing it here on the show, of new M2 Apple Silicon Macs. So that's the next generation of Apple Silicon, and the rumor mills have been buzzing about that this week. I think one thing that kind of kicked it off was earlier in the week, three new Mac models were spotted in the filings to the Eurasian Economic database and that's a database kind of like the FCC database where Apple has to post new models of of uh devices and machines that are going to be coming out and they posted A2615, A2686 and A2681 to that database and noted that all of those products or devices were running macOS Monterey so that indicates these are likely new Mac models Now, the models I would assume would be a 13-inch MacBook Pro, a possibly a new MacBook Air, and possibly a new Mac Mini, because those are all of the successors to the current M1 versions of those models that came out last year. So it would make sense that Apple would be updating those to M2, but that may or may not be the case. That may or may not be what Apple actually announces on March 8th. And again, March 8th, that's a speculative uh, event date too. That's just when we're assuming they're going to have their next event, but obviously invitations haven't gone out. So anything could change at this point. But in a recent note from uh, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, he thinks that Apple will announce the updated entry-level MacBook Pro and the updated Mac Mini but that the MacBook Air might likely come later in the year, even all the way as far out as the holidays. He thinks that'll be more of a holiday model. So that'll be interesting to see if you know those are the two models that actually show up. Now, for the 13-inch MacBook Pro model, Mac Rumors claims that they have sources telling them that there is not going to be any design changes to that model, which I find very interesting. They're saying just the updated M2 processor. And so, as you might imagine, that means it's going to keep the touch bar. It's not going to gain the notch. It's not going to have ProMotion like its bigger 14-inch and 16-inch sisters. So that feels really odd to me because Apple wouldn't be bringing the models together with the same design language and it would leave the 13 inch macbook pro as the only notebook in the lineup that still has a touch bar which has never been a very popular feature so i don't see the reason to retain it now the notch i can kind of fall into understanding that because you have a smaller screen there's not as much screen real estate but you know apple managed that on the 14 inch model so you wouldn't think it would be that big a difference and you would think they'd really want to standardize that design language because the notch like it or hate it is now kind of the apple notebook thing since they brought it out on the uh on the the new models the the 14 inch the 16 inch macbook pro but 
Ultimately, it means for the updated M2 uh, MacBook Pro that Apple would be just adding two graphics cores to the chip. It's expected that they're still going to have the same number of CPU cores. So you'll have 10 graphics cores, seven or eight CPU cores, and then that would bump up the performance a little bit, and that would kind of be it. So uh, not feeling like a really exciting update if, if that's all that happens, but you know, it, it seems plausible, although, I, you know, again, I think I'd like to see Apple do a little bit more with that. Some folks had also had hopes of seeing that new 27-inch M1 Pro or M1 Max version of the iMac coming out this spring, but display analyst Ross Young says that model is more likely coming out in June, the kind of June time frame. I honestly felt the Pro announcements like the new Mac Pro Uh, Apple Silicon Mac Pro and the updated 27-inch iMac Pro would be around Worldwide Developer Conference. That seems to make sense to me. Those are more pro-level systems. Uh, Ross Young says that, uh, you know, Apple has been working on a mini LED version of the 27-inch iMac for a while now. It's likely going to come with that Pro moniker. He had previously said that it was possibly arriving August or September that Apple would begin production in uh, the June timeframe. He's now moved that up a little bit. And so we could see that in his mind a little bit earlier. But again, I always kind of felt, and I think I talked about this on a previous show, always kind of felt like we'd see the Pro models around June. So I'm still thinking that's going to happen. 27-inch iMac Pro, Pro Max version of the iMac, and then uh, the Mac Pro. I The Mac Pro, my guess is at Worldwide Developer Conference, they're going to kind of preview it to developers, and it probably won't actually be shipping for quite some time, probably until the fall. But we'll have to wait and see. That's just pure speculation on uh, on my part. But that's kind of the latest rumors going on around Mac models. Now, one other bit of Mac news that came up this week that I wanted to talk about a little bit was a company that makes a password cracking tool called Passware claims that they've found a vulnerability in Apple's T2 chip that allows them to bypass the password lockouts and to crack passwords on that machine. Now, this is a company that already has a tool that uses GPU acceleration to make basically brute force password attacks on systems uh, at the rate of tens of thousands of passwords per second, and that can potentially crack passwords on older non-T2 Macs. But the password lockout feature on T2 Macs has previously kind of thwarted them, and supposedly this you know workaround that they found allows them to get past that. So they'd still have to go after brute force forcing the password. Prior to this, they'd actually have to try to brute force the decryption key for the T2 chip, and that would take millions of years just because of the complexity of that. But with this new method, they're saying, hey, we can get past the password lockout, although it's still at an extremely slow rate. So not tens of thousands of passwords per second. They're saying around... 15 or so attempts per second. So it's still pretty slow. So as long as you have a good, random, and sufficiently long password, it should still take thousands of years for this thing to brute force crack the password. So I don't think we have to worry about this too much. If you have a short, say, six-character or shorter password, and it's not random, and it contains dictionary words, they're saying they can crack that in as little as 10 hours or so, something like that. But again... At the end of the day, this tool requires direct physical access to your Mac. So if you choose a good password, you stay in control of your own computer, you should be totally fine. There's nothing to worry about with this. So I typically don't talk about these kind of uh, 
exploits because I think oftentimes the media makes it sound much worse than it is. I did want to talk about this one in case you saw it because it's not the kind of thing we need to panic over. Um, you know, if there is a vulnerability in the T2 chip, and it's, again, not even clear how they're doing this, if it's just kind of a workaround or if it's actually a vulnerability. Uh, but even if there was a vulnerability in the T2 chip, there's probably nothing Apple can do until they actually put out a new version of that chip. Obviously, being in hardware, that's a little bit uh, limiting. I don't think they, they can't do, as far as I know, firmware updates to that. But overall, not anything to worry about, and I just wanted to bring that up. The 2022 South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas is happening on March 11th through the 19th. And it looks like Apple is planning to debut a new film there, along with four of their new series for Apple TV+. The film they'll be screening is Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which stars Dakota Johnson and is directed by Cooper Rafe. The film also won the Audience Award at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. Apple will also be screening the series We Crashed, which is the one that follows the story of the rise and fall of the WeWork founders and stars Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. They will also show their new docuseries, which is about basketball legend Irvin Magic Johnson called They Call Me Magic, along with the new drama series Shining Girls, which stars and is executive produced by Elizabeth Moss. And finally, a new project from the filmmakers behind McMillions, James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazart, uh, is a docuseries called The Big Con, which tells the story of Eric C. Con, an attorney who had defrauded the government for over a half a billion dollars in the largest social, social security fraud case in history. So number of new series and things going to be debuted at South by Southwest. Meanwhile, Apple is also apparently preparing for the upcoming Oscars. Their films Coda and the Tragedy of Macbeth received several nominations. Apple films are actually up for six awards in all. According to Just Watch, following the announcement of the nomination of both those films, they returned to the top 10 streaming charts in the U.S. So they got a little bump with uh, the Oscar Award nominations. I have to tell you, I had not watched CODA yet. I think I mentioned on the last episode of the MacCast, and I did after uh, after that. So I am in, that, uh, in those numbers that help take them uh, back to the top 10 in the streaming charts. Now, Another thing that Apple is planning to do is to re-release Coda into theaters in select major cities in the U.S. and London, at least for a limited run. And bonus, the showings are going to be free on a first-come, first-served basis. The showings are going to be happening three times a day between February 25th and the 27th, and they will all have open captions so that they will be fully accessible to the deaf and hard of hearing. Of course, Apple continues to produce new shows or announce new shows for Apple TV+. And this week, they expanded their lineup with a couple of new documentary series. They announced the new docuseries called Omnivore. This one's going to be about food. And they say it will, quote, tell the story of humanity and the planet through eight defining ingredients. 
And then they also seem to really want to get more sports content onto Apple TV Plus, either one way or the other. Remember, we talked about Apple actively bidding for NFL Thursday Night Football. That hasn't come through. But this week, a report from THR claims that Apple has ordered a 10-part docuseries called The Dynasty about the New England Patriots. The project comes from Imagine Documentaries and NFL Films and is based on a book of the same name by Jeff Benedict. It will follow the Tom Brady years of the franchise. I guess it's pretty nice to have deep pockets. You may remember back in January, the Dutch Authority for Consumers and Markets expressed their displeasure with Apple's proposed solution for allowing third-party payments in dating apps on the Dutch App Store. If you go back even further, you might remember us talking about this, that uh, they were upset about uh, dating apps in the Dutch App Store and Apple not allowing third-party payments. They made a ruling on that, and then Apple came back and uh, said how they were going to comply with that ruling. And then Later, the authority said, hey, that's not good enough. We're not really liking that. The authority had ruled that Apple needed to allow for such payments, and Apple complied by saying that developers could or would actually have to create a new version of their app if they wanted to use an alternative payment system. And the Dutch authority was not too happy about that. As such, they gave Apple until January 15th to change their conditions, or they said they would start fining Apple 5 million euros a week, up to 50 million euros until they changed their policy. Well, guess what? Apple hasn't changed anything. Uh, Another thing that was interesting about this, though, too, is that Apple said they were still going to collect a 27% fee on third-party purchases, but the Dutch authority didn't seem to have any issue with that. Uh, So Apple, you know, in their own uh, way, has just kindly ignored the, uh, the deadline and for the past four weeks haven't really done anything. As a result, the Dutch authority has now fined Apple 20 million euros in fines. Ah, this is just an interesting story. I think that Apple plans to just like wait it out. I think they're going to pay out honestly the full 50 million and then ultimately have their way because to me it's not really clear what if anything happens after Apple reaches the maximum fine other than they've paid the maximum fine and they really haven't had to change any of their policies. So I'm guessing how that's how it's going to go down. We'll have to wait and see how the Dutch authority uh, reacts to uh, all of this and if they try and levy or or change the fine scheme. I don't even know what they could possibly do, but fun little story to follow along, I guess, and um kind of shows Apple's defiance and Apple's going to have their way one way or the other, I guess. And then finally in the news for this week, a rumor about the upcoming iPhone 14 Pro and more RAM. This rumor is coming out of a Korean blog. They say that Apple will add the most RAM it ever has to the new iPhone Pro models this year. The leak says Apple will bump the RAM up to 8 gigabytes, and some think that this is to match the recently announced Samsung Galaxy S22 models. It's not the first time we've heard this rumor, though. High Tong 
International Securities Analyst Jeff Poo made the same claim near the end of last year. Still, even this year's iPhone 13 models already best the Galaxy S22 in terms of performance, and they only have 6 gigabytes of RAM. It's not clear exactly why Apple would need to add more, as it's always been able to do more with less, at least in my opinion. Apple isn't typically one to just play keeping up with the SAMs, in my opinion, so if they do bump it, I feel they'd have to have some kind of specific feature or functionality. One possibility, I guess, would be the new rumored higher 48 megapixel camera. So image processing, maybe they want to get a little bit more RAM in there for. I don't know. What do you think they might want to bump the RAM up for? It's definitely not going to be to increase performance, I don't think. So they have to have some kind of feature, maybe something in AR, VR, something like that. Uh, let me know what you think, maccast at gmail.com. And then on the display side of things, it's also looking like the iPhone 14 non-pro model might not be gaining ProMotion support after all. We've been hearing rumors that Apple would do ProMotion across the line, looking like that may remain a pro-only feature, at least if the site The Elect is to be believed. They say that BOE, Apple's supplier for their lower-end displays is going to be supplying low-temperature polycrystalline silicon, LTPS, thin film transistor, TFT OLED panels for the upcoming iPhone 14 series. To do ProMotion, you need the LTPO displays, which is what Apple used in the iPhone 13 Pros. So assuming that tech's not in there, that's the that's the tech that actually allows for variable refresh rates up to 120 hertz, basically Apple's ProMotion technology. If that's not in there, that's not going to be part of the phone. So if that rumor turns out to be true, iPhone 14, iPhone 14 mini is not going to have ProMotion. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another one of my show sponsors. Today's episode of the MacCast is brought to you by Simply Safe Home Security. Have you ever wanted to know what's happening at home when you're not there? I am a big fan of the new wireless outdoor camera from Simply Safe. It lets you see what's happening outside right from your phone and alerts you when anyone approaches so you always know who's there. Now, lucky for me, in my neighborhood, it's pretty low-key. Not much really happens around here, but I can tell you, thanks to Simply Safe, uh, I was able to see which neighbor was letting their big dog leave me little presents on my lawn, and now, hey, that's not happening anymore. Yeah, guilt is a, is, guilt is a powerful thing. Uh, I get to also have the peace of mind, though, knowing that if something more serious were happening, I'd actually know about it. Simply Safe has everything you need to keep your home safe from entry and motion sensors to indoor and outdoor cameras. And I love the easy setup of the system. And I also think it's great that I was able to fully customize my system to my home. Simply Safe is monitored 24/7 by professionals ready to dispatch police, firefighters or EMTs to your home, and Simply Safe is less than $1 a day and you can set it up in around 30 minutes. There's no long-term contracts or commitments. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com/maccast and go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. 
Go to simplysafe.com slash MacCast. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to Simply Safe for their support of the show. Cool thing we've been doing over the past couple of weeks here on the MacCast is talking to you in the community about how you manage working on multiple systems at home using a single monitor mouse and keyboard. So back in the day, we used to have keyboard, video, and mouse switches, KVM switches. And in the age of modern computers with Bluetooth and all that sort of stuff, that's changed a lot. And a lot of us, uh, myself and many of you out there, are now maybe working from home. You might have a work computer and a home computer. And if you're like me, you have limited desk space. So you don't want four monitors, you know, separate monitors for your work system and your home system and double mice and double keyboards and all that sort of stuff. So we've been talking about these different solutions. We've had a lot of great ideas over the past few episodes. You can go back and review those in case you missed any of them. But this week, I got an interesting tip and solution from Chad. And Chad said that uh, basically he uses a what amounts to kind of like a two-step KVM. So it's not a one-click system like it was back in the old days. Um, but he set up a system with a little switch and a monitor input switching that really solved the problem for him. So it does require that you have a dual input monitor and a wired keyboard and an RF mouse, not a Bluetooth mouse. So there's some caveats to this one, but I liked the solution because I think it, it seems very reliable and kind of solves and ticks off a lot of the buttons for issues that we've been having with other solutions. So basically, you connect each machine to a different monitor input source. Most monitors these these days have multiple input sources. So say one HDMI port and another, you know, Thunderbolt port or display port or DVI port, whatever it might be. And then you can usually push a button on the monitor to switch between those. And then Chad uses a simple USB-AB switch from Sobrant called the USB 2.0 sharing switch. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at MacCast.com. It's about a $10 switch. And yeah, it's USB 2.0, but you're just hooking a mouse and keyboard to it, so it really shouldn't matter. The speed of it shouldn't matter. And then, like I said, the mouse is an RF mouse, so what you do is you plug the keyboard into this switch, and then that goes to both computers, A and B, and then you plug the RF dongle for the mouse into the keyboard. So you'll need a keyboard with a USB port on it. You know, all Apple keyboards have that. So if you have an Apple keyboard, you just plug the little dongle into that. And so your mouse is connected to the keyboard, which is then connected to the computer through the the switch. And then, so when Chad needs to change from one system to the other, it's a simple matter of changing the video source on the monitor and then clicking the little button on the AB switch for the mouse and keyboard to switch over, and you're done. So two clicks versus one click, but super reliable. Chad says he's been using this system for about the past six years, and it works beautifully for him. So I thought that was a beautiful solution, and thank you, Chad, for sending that in. I think it was on the last episode of the MacCast when I mentioned that my office has given me a new M1 Pro, 14-inch MacBook Pro, as uh, my new work computer. They upgraded me from a uh, Mac Mini that I had before. And I believe I also mentioned that I had been using it in clamshell mode with some dual monitors. 
as part of my thing of the moment pick, uh, I picked the Monoprice USB-C to DVI adapters. And I think during that segment, I also commented that it was a little bit of a bummer using it in clamshell mode because I can't use the Touch ID feature on it. And Terry emailed me to remind me that Apple actually has a solution for this with their new Magic Keyboard with Touch ID. And they offer these in both a compact and extended edition, and they work with all current Apple Silicon machines. And I think I probably didn't think about it because I didn't have an Apple Silicon machine before, and I I knew those keyboards didn't work with my computer, which is my 16-inch MacBook Pro. Now, the keyboards are a little bit of a costly upgrade. They're $149 and $179 respectively for the compact and the extended. Uh, And you do have to have an Apple Silicon machine, and I only have one so far, so it would benefit me on one machine but not the other machine, but it still might be worth the investment in my opinion because eventually I will get an Apple Silicon machine for my personal computer. Now, as a side note, I also wanted to comment about the Monoprice USB-C, USB-C to DVI adapters that I've been using. They work beautifully with my new Mac, but I actually have to directly plug them into the Mac uh, to get them to work reliably because I haven't found that I can use my two monitors when I have it plugged into my Anchor 13-in-1 Thunderbolt 3 dock. And I really didn't kind of think this through or think about it. And it's really because there's only a single Thunderbolt downlink port, one downlink port on that. And so I believe I'd have to actually have monitors that I could daisy chain. Now, one thing I haven't tried is I do have an HDMI port on that dock. So I probably could plug one monitor in via HDMI and then one via Thunderbolt. Uh, so that could be a way to go, but I kind of wanted to just bring this up and throw it out to the community. Those of you out there who have docs, maybe there are docs out there with multiple downlink ports. Maybe there's another way to go. Your downstream Thunderbolt ports, uh, unfortunately not really possible. I don't think for my older DVI HDMI monitors, because you can't daisy chain DVI or HDMI, so that's not going to be a solution in my current situation. But it might be also an excuse to pick up a couple of new monitors. I've been eyeing a few of them, maybe some new 32-inch models. I have uh, 24-inch models. Maybe 27's okay. I don't know. But maybe just go all the way to 32's. 232s might be a little bit too much screen real estate, but there were some great monitors when I started looking for monitors that actually had extra downstream ports on them. I found a couple. So I'd like to get recommendations from the community, but or even find out if any of you are using these monitors, how they are. But there's a 32-inch LG Ultrafine 4K display, um, the 32UL950W that looks pretty nice to me and also a BenQ 32-inch 4K Thunderbolt 3 monitor um, called the PD3220U, so 320U. Uh, and I'll have links to these in the show notes at maccast.com. But I'll be curious to know what 
folks out there are using. Is anybody doing a daisy-chained downlink setup, and how does that work for you? Is it reliable? And then, like I said, also, if there's a docking solution out there that's maybe easier for hooking up uh, two Thunderbolt monitors, let me know about that one as well. And I look forward to hearing from you in the community. And then I had Dan email in this week. He wrote to tell me about an article he had read recently that compared the privacy settings on set-top boxes, set-top streamers. So it was comparing like Apple TV to Roku to Fire TV. And in that article, it made it seem like Apple was auto-opting you into data collection uh, so that they could make recommendations on your viewing and get data about what apps you're using and all that sort of stuff. And Dan was a little bit worried about this, and I kind of went and looked at the article and read through it, and it was a little bit misleading. It wasn't horrible, but it kind of made it sound like you were responsible for going in and turning things off, that you were being opted into things. And when Dan went in after reading this article to check his settings, he in, uh, indeed noticed that all of this data sharing, these data sharing options were turned on. But I think what really is going on here is if you've ever been through, and this is true for any of Apple's current products, uh, your Mac, your Apple TV, your iOS devices, when you first set those up, you go through a series of setup steps, and part of that setup is several privacy-related questions asking you if you want to opt in to certain kinds of data collection. And those are set to on by default. So these are things like, do you want to enable location services? Do you want to share uh, Siri dictation data with Apple? Do you want to share uh, data with Apple, just app usage data and, and those sorts of things with Apple? Do you want to share app data with third-party developers? And a lot of these are defaulted. I think actually all of them are defaulted to yes um, in all cases, but Apple does give you the option to actually opt out of that. Now, if you're reading it and you're going through it, I think in a lot of cases what happens is people just want to get their Mac set up. They're excited to use their new device and you're just clicking through as quickly as possible. Apple does also, if you actually read it, try to make it appealing, saying, hey, you're going to help us out. You're going to help improve our products and services by saying yes to this and opting into all of this data collection. And so a lot of people probably just feel pretty good. It's Apple. Hey, we'll just opt in to doing it. So I can see that side of things, but that's where I was getting it. Like this article made it sound more nefarious, I think, than it actually was. I mean, Apple does do a pretty good job of letting you opt out and control that sort of thing. So uh, bottom line is if you just kind of breeze through it, you could be opted into maybe some privacy settings that you don't want to be opted into. I think it's always good to do just a privacy settings review from time to time to see what you're opted in for, not only for your third-party apps, but also just Apple apps in general. So you can always go into settings, general privacy on your Apple TV, and you can check this stuff out and you can adjust any of those settings that you might have set up during uh, the initial setup of your Apple TV. Now, a few other settings uh, and options you might be want to be aware of on your Apple TV. One is the new feature that Apple has added to actually all, again, all their devices where apps now have to ask you for permission to track you, right? The new tracking feature, the pop-up, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of, a lot of us have seen this. Hey, this app would like to track you. Is this okay? And 
as we know, a lot of people are opting out of that. There's actually a setting for that. If you go under settings, general privacy, and then select tracking, there's an option. And I learned something about this when I did the research for this. It says, allow apps to ask to track. And then there's a toggle. You can turn that on or off. And you might think, hey, I want that on because I want apps to ask me and not just track me. Well, it turns out you actually might want to turn that off if your default posture is always going to be, no, don't track me. Because each app that asks for permission to track while this setting is turned off will be treated as if you tapped the the option to ask the app not to track you. So you can avoid having to answer that question over and over and over again and say, no, you can't track me by turning this option off. Um, Now, that does mean if you need to go back and actually want an app to allow you, you know, allow it to track you, you're going to have to go back and set that manually at some point in the future because the default's always going to be no. But uh, I'm probably going to be turning that setting to that because I always say no. I don't want any apps actually tracking me these days. So just something to be aware of. Another option is setting which third-party apps can access and remember preferences for Apple TV users. This is a setting that's helpful if you have multiple users on your Apple TV. Again, you're going to go under Settings, General Privacy, select Apple TV Users, and then you can turn app user access either on or off. You can also go in there and reset user access to remove any user-specific preferences from all third-party apps. So there's some settings in there you can uh, mess with for your users. And then lastly, if you have turned on the, you know, allow analytics tracking um, for that option so that Apple and third-party apps and things can, can track data on you, you actually can go in and view and review that data. You can also, you know, delete it and, and get rid of it too. Fair warning, a lot of you, if you go in and look at this stuff, it's going to look like gobbledygoo to most folks. That's because it's in a JSON format, which is a web data format. Not real easy to read, but you can review it. You can go into settings, general privacy, select analytics data, and then select any data item in there and click the view option. And you can scroll through and you can kind of see, hey, what data is it sending off to Apple? and uh, review it and then maybe that'll help inform your decision on whether you want to continue to allow it or you want to disable it so a few different privacy settings and, and things you can check out on your apple tv and then finally for this week we have a thing of the moment this one comes from listener justin who says he's a non-case iphone man and recently upgraded his iphone se version 2 to a new iPhone 13 mini. Congratulations, Justin. That's a great phone. He really likes the slim feel of the bare iPhones and figures, hey, that's the way Apple designed it and that's how it's supposed to be used. But he commented that with the new phone, he's found the sharp edge, the squared off edge design combined with the size makes it a little bit harder to hold in one hand. And he was considering looking to add a simple bumper case to it, but really didn't find one that he liked. 
and he was recently visiting with a relative, and that relative actually had one of the new MagSafe iPhone leather wallets. This is the little wallet that can attach to your iPhone if you have MagSafe, and uh, he tried it out, and he says it's a, quote, game changer. He said that the extra little bit of depth that it added to the phone allowed his hand to cup the phone perfectly, making it easier for him to use and operate in one hand. Uh, He says it fits, as Apple says, about three cards perfectly and no more than that. So, you know, it's not a big wallet, but it fits probably the right number of cards, you know, a credit card, a driver's license, and then maybe an insurance card or, um, you know, a store card or something like that. Just, you know, what you need to carry around in your pocket. And Justin says it's slim and smooth enough so it doesn't interfere with going in and out of a pocket at all. So not bulky, not cumbersome. And then really the big final bonus is that version of the wallet has AirTag Find My functionality built right into it. So when you drop it on your phone for the first time, it will actually prompt you to set it up and then you have Find My for your cards and your little Apple MagSafe wallet, which is really, really cool. So sounds like a really great pick. Um, I haven't tried one out yet, but now I am have to say I'm, I'm really curious to maybe give one a shot. Um, I also want to just throw in kind of a bonus pick of my own, and that's just for Apple's leather iPhone case as well. You know, if you're a non-case person like Justin, I think this is one of the thinnest cases that you can get. It doesn't add a lot of bulk, and it feels really, really great. Um, Nice, soft, supple leather. Uh, I love how it feels in my hand. It adds a little bit of grip, in my opinion. And again, just like Justin says with the MagSafe wallet, it doesn't cause any problems sliding in and out of your pocket. Um, I think the cases, for the most part, depending upon the color, wear beautifully. I think they get a nice patina and even get better and softer with age. And um, with the MagSafe version, you can use that in conjunction with the MagSafe wallet and, of course, all the MagSafe accessories, and it works really, really great. I have had Apple's leather case on my phone for years now. Every new model, I just get a new one, and they're, for me, really durable. They last a really long time, um, you know, and I just think they're awesome. So if you've never checked out any of Apple's leather iPhone accessories. Um, Highly recommended by both myself and Justin as well. Um, So with that, that's actually going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Thanks for hanging out. Before I leave you, I do want to thank my show sponsor, Smile, makers of Text Expander. You can check out Text Expander by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising in the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, if you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. Mm-hmm.